Welcome to the second episode of Debatable, a podcast series by Anthro Magazine and KPLY Radio from the Incubator Program at Palo Alto High School. I'm your host, Olga Muse. In this series, we'll host various student-led debates on a wide range of topics, from politics to culture. On this episode of Debatable, I sat down with two Pali students, William Rummelhart and Michaela Sia, one a moderate Democrat and the other a leftist, to discuss, debrief, and debate the events of President Biden's first 30 days in office. Please note that this podcast was recorded on February 23rd, 2021. My name is William Rummelhart. I'm a junior at Palo Alto High School. Uh, and I would define myself as a moderate centrist establishment Democrat. My name is Michaela Sia. Uh, I also go to Palo Alto High School and I would consider myself a leftist. So a little bit to the left of the, of the Democratic Party. Just overall, what were your um, impressions of President Biden's first 30 days in office? Um, was it what you expected or were your expectations subverted somewhat? Uh, I think it's pretty phenomenal 30 days, pretty remarkable 30 days, actually. I think we have functional government with competent people, which we've been depraved of that for four years. And it's really refreshing to have that. Um, I expected a lot. I expected, you know, a lot of actions early on, which I think we've seen lots of executive orders pushing this, the rescue plan. Um, so I expected a lot and I think we've gotten a lot. So I'm, I'm pretty pleased so far with the first 30 days. Um, I obviously have a different opinion. I feel that, well, I wasn't expecting a lot. Um, and somehow he somehow managed to disappoint me. I thought for sure that he would roll back on immigration because that was something that he talked about a lot during the campaign trail. And one of the biggest criticisms of Trump was his immigration uh, plan and his strategies. But I mean, I can't say I'm a little bit, I can't say that I'm surprised that Biden decided to um, continue on with those harsh with those harsh policies because at the end of the day he is an establishment Democrat and the establishment stands for violence. Um, I do think that something that was complete I didn't expect it at all was when he um, closed down the construction for the 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 pipeline the Houston pipeline I think uh, that is probably the one thing that I um, I'm thankful that he did and obviously the coronavirus because. We didn't have a plan before, but now we at least have a plan. How it will roll out, we'll just we'll see in the future. So just to start off with some questions regarding Biden's vaccination and coronavirus policy. So one stumbling that the administration faced during these first 30 days um, was regarding the recommendations put out by the CDC regarding reopening schools. Um, from those in there have been criticisms of it from those in favor and against reopening of schools. Um, so notably, the CDC said that teachers would not have to be vaccinated totally in order to go back to teaching in person. Um, and our own school district, PAUSD, has made the decision to come back this week, the first week of March, um, without first vaccinating all teachers. Um, on the other hand, some say that the CDC recommendations were too strict. Um, Biden has made it a point that he is determined to reopen schools, even in red zone areas of the country. Um, what are your thoughts about the CDC recommendations and Biden, and like Biden's, I guess, coronavirus policy in general, but more specifically regarding schools and vaccination? Yeah, um, I, I guess I'm, I don't feel like I am in qualified to characterize the CDC findings about school. Like, I don't feel, I feel like I would need to 
be a scientist and be studying that. I have enormous confidence in the CDC now, something I didn't have under the Trump administration. I think it's very much operating as an independent body um, in terms of its, its fact finding and its research. So I think I, on the school reopening issue, I think it's everywhere it's different and everywhere it's, a, everywhere it's the same in terms of the, that it's a balancing act. So it's weighing out, ideally you'd want teachers to be vaccinated, absolutely. But if you're able to do it safely, as the CDC indicates, without vaccinating teachers and you're taking all the other mitigation steps, it seems like for a lot of students, perhaps not in Pali, but definitely some in Pali, they're remote learning, don't have good internet, don't have good Wi-Fi. It's really important that they get back in person. Um, and just quickly on broadly on the broad um, American Rescue Plan, I think it makes sense. I think it meets the need. Um, I think it's totally reasonable. It's comprehensive. Um, I will we'll get into minimum wage and stuff later, but I think I think as a rescue plan, as what as what it is, I think it's really really something that will be of great benefit in recovering from the COVID pandemic. Um, I agree with William. I don't really consider myself a scientist or a doctor. I mean, I am only a senior in high school, um, but- it's a lot. <laughs> More than <laughs> <Well>, me. <laughs> true. But um, so I don't really have much critiques or anything to say really on like the broader plan. I do have to say for school reopening that I disagree with William's point that it's possible to have like a safely us like safely um, reopening schools without vaccinating teachers because even if you do follow all the guidelines, first of all, students are a little bit unpredictable, so there's no guarantee that they will follow the guidelines for sure. And second of all, even like again, even if you do follow all the guidelines, the teachers will still have at least some sort of risk to the virus and. Um, I can't say this for all school teachers across the country, but if they're anything like the ones that pause, they're probably um, on the older side. And obviously that's not ideal. I would say that for the students who cannot stand remote learning, ideally we would have them back at school. But of course, that's only if we are at a point where teachers are not risk because you know, without a teachers, there's no school. So I think that we should prioritize their lives first. Yeah, so I appreciate that point. I guess when when you when you said that you don't think it can be done safely, that question of whether it can be done safely was precisely what the CDC was examining, and their and their conclusion was yes, teachers schools can reopen with teachers not being vaccinated, but you have to have all these other mitigation. I agree that it's difficult, students being irresponsible, immature, but I think kind of the, the crux of the question here was researched by the CDC and answered by the CDC. So I'm not maybe understanding right, but where you're I'm getting. I'm sure the CDC would agree that it, even with all the precautions, there's still a virus going around. It right. is less safe than if there is no virus. And the only way there is no virus is if we are 100% sure that it's not getting spread, right? And how um, would people coming to school, even with the regulations, lower the cost of the spread? Yeah, so at, at this point, Hopefully, if we had gotten our act uh, together uh, better earlier, we would hopefully be without the virus. But of course, we have the virus. So I don't think in terms of reopening school, it's realistic to say, well, when the risk is completely gone, then we will reopen schools because that's actually going to be like pretty far into next year when it's completely gone. So I, at this point, I think I think really, again, as I said, it's a balancing act. You have to I, I don't I don't know. I don't think. Um, I'm able to provide like the answer for pause specifically. I'm not sure, um, but I really think 
I, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be cognizant of the fact that there are a lot of students who do not have the resources and are falling behind academically. And so I think, yes, there's risk, but balancing that with um, other needs is an important way to get to the solution for reopening I agree. the district. Yes, I agree that there is a sort of balancing act because I meant, I don't think this is the case for our county or our school district, but I do know that across the country, there are counties or children that do not have the same resources that we do. Mm -hmm. So of course, I'm not gonna be able to speak exactly on all of those issues. But again, I would like to reiterate that I think the most important part is that the teachers are fully vaccinated. If the teachers are fully vaccinated, then I can understand reopening a little bit, even if it does kind of, even if any contact whatsoever is a little, is like kind of spreading the virus. I think that we should only really reopen schools if it's guaranteed that teachers are vaccinated as they are essential workers. I also uh, like to add that I don't think it's unrealistic and I don't think it's unreasonable to demand that teachers be vaccinated before we reopen schools, even with guidelines. So a main talking point for the Biden for Biden during his 2020 campaign was a promise for a $2,000 stimulus check. Um, that number was lowered to $1,400 shortly after Biden took office, and the checks are not anticipated to be rolled out until later this month or next month. Um, Additionally, the parliamentarian recently ruled that a $15 federal minimum wage could not be passed through uh, reconciliation, meaning that it could not be included uh, with the rest of the stimulus bill, um, which means I would probably have to get pushed to much later. Um, so what are your impressions of these changes? What should the democratic strategy for getting over this roadblock to passing the minimum wage look like? I there think first, go. I'd like to challenge the premise that Biden is not keeping that promise. So there's $600 were passed in the, in the December COVID relief bill. In this bill is $1,400. That's a $2,000 check. And the, the importance of this, of getting it passed very soon, which is very important, is that other, other forms of assistance do expire in March. So if, if in this bill was $2,000, the, the result would be $2,600, which go, I'm, not, I'm not saying going bigger would be a catastrophe, but in terms of his promise, it's 100% fulfilling the promise. Um, as a, and when it comes to minimum wage, I think 100% $50 minimum wage, I'm, I support and I'm confident the Biden administration supports. I think the issue is at this point, there is no path in the American Rescue Plan in the Senate through reconciliation to get it passed. Now, the parliamentarian, you know, it's kind of a weird archaic Senate thing. We can talk about that. I appreciate that that's kind of an odd thing to be an impediment. But I think at this point, if, if they were trying to pressure um, the Vice President Kamala Harris to overrule, and then you need 50, 50, 51 votes to sustain that overruling the parliamentarian, I think that you, had, that you would mess up the whole American Rescue Plan process, which is already very fragile because the margin for error for the Democrats is basically zero because their majority is so slim. So I think, I think it really, the strategy going forward, it's gonna to need to be maybe, maybe right after this is passed, but it's gonna to need to be in a separate thing at a separate time. Um, okay, so like when the $600 passed, was Biden at power at that time? That was in December, right? So like before the inauguration? Uh, it was, but... <laughs> you are going to get $2,000 checks. You're currently getting $600 checks. 
Wait, I would like to, I would like to expand on my point first. Sure, sure. So when he was running for president, he said, I'm going to give you a $2,000 check. He did not say at any point in time that that counted the $600 that was passed by the Trump administration. So when people vote for him, they're thinking, oh, he's going to give me $2,000. So in whole, it'd be $2,600 that we got from the government. Well, first of all, I, when he made when he made such comment, could have been before the December thing was passed, so it wouldn't be a question. But he's of not in promising. power at that time. No, so I, what I does that have to right. do so, with his so platform? The result that he is promising is two thousand dollars. If there was nothing in December, and he passed fourteen hundred dollars, you did not get that two thousand dollars. But Pelosi got it going. They got it going in December. They, they pushed it in before the break. They got, they got the $600. Biden says, okay, what do I need to do to, to, to fulfill my promise of $2,000? I need to do $1,400. And then you get the $2,000. So I, I'm not, maybe I'm not understanding. If, if it was a situation where there was no existing amount of money that was being sent out in checks, and he, he, he said $2,000, which he, which he promised, and he bid $1,400, and I, then we could have a discussion about is he going back on his word, but that's not at all the situation. I guess I'm just confused because I was under the impression that it would be an extra $2,000 on top of the $600, and I think a lot of people are upset because they're under that impression as well. However, if um, I understand your point that in all is $2,000 plus the one from the Trump administration and the $14,000 here, uh, I just thought that was a little unclear, and my thoughts on that, that being that um, it was it was unclear, and therefore people feel like he's not going on his promise. I would also like to add on for the uh, $15 wage thing. I so, uh, Obviously, I'm in support of a $15 minimum wage, and I do think that the Democrats should pursue it of any means necessary. If it does not pass with this $2,000 thing, it should be the next thing on the docket. Uh, yeah, I, I'm 100% I'm with, with that, unless, I mean... I don't think there's any circumstance that could change that. Another promise that Biden made during his campaign was to undo Trump's infamously harsh immigration policy, especially those towards immigrant children. However, in this last week, or in the week prior, I wrote these questions last week, um, the Biden administration opened up its first migrant child emergency facility in Texas, a facility first opened under the Trump administration to much criticism. According to a recent Washington Post article, the move has been assailed by immigration lawyers and activists, with immigration lawyer Linda Brandmiller proclaiming, quote, it's unnecessary, it's costly, and it goes absolutely against everything President Biden promised he was going to do, unquote. What are your opinions on this move by Biden? So I think, first of all, in terms of Biden's immigration policy, I don't think we're at a point where we can make a judgment yet. There's been like two executive orders. And his, he has an immigration plan, which he laid out, but it hasn't been presented in great detail to Congress. In terms of the facility, this is another like, like non-story non, non for me. So basically you have unaccompanied children coming to the border who it's, it's, a, big, it's a big problem because the countries they're coming from have really bad economic circumstances, violence, persecution, et cetera. They needed this extra facility for COVID for extra spacing. They, this is not a housing, this is for processing. So it's a 72 hour maximum, maximum that they're in ICE 
custody or they in the ICE facility. I don't know what the term is. And then they go to uh, Health and Human Services, and then they go and they go get spon uh, family sponsor families, and then they go from there. So this facility is not we're bringing back, you know, just you know throwing children in uh, in a cage, and you know for for two years like the the despicable despicable policy of the last administration. This is for COVID guidelines. We have all these people for processing, for safety. We need to have this extra facility. So that's kind of my understanding of this issue. And it seems like it's really a non-story, non non-issue. Well, I think that if migrant activists have a problem with it, there probably is some sort of cruelty underneath it because it's not like, it's not like they'll make a... I feel that migrant activists who have been in the field for a long time won't just make if it's so positive if it's such a good thing i feel like they wouldn't have a need to protest it i think i mean i don't know i don't i i can't pass judgment on migrant migrant activists which migrant activists saying what i don't know i i think there's no question that we have serious problems on our border and i think a good thing that the trump uh, the biden administration has been um conveying is that now was not the time to come. The, the uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas conveyed that at press conference with Jen Psaki a few days ago, I don't remember precisely. So I, 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 I think it's completely disingenuous to align the opening of a facility for COVID reasons that doesn't do housing at all and does processing and that, for, that, and that individuals are in it for a maximum of three days with ripping children can you repeat what you just said reuniting them for two years and basically abandoning them and forgetting about them about what Mayorkas mm -hmm. said yeah so basically conveying that now is not the time to come to to now of course that isn't that isn't a solution because mm -hmm. there's still a problem people still fleeing this stuff right so it, it isn't like now is not the time to come and then we go home but it's we have unprecedented number of people. We need to work with, we need to provide aid to the triangle countries, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, to really help conditions there. We need to coordinate with those governments. We need, we need to work on this. I think a positive move that has been done is hmm. the, in the, the migrants that were, that Trump said, you can't be in the United States, you have to be in Mexico. And they're like these just tent cities, whatever, which is really horrible conditions and especially for COVID. Um, that now that now the Biden administration has moved those people into the United States as the as the process goes forward. So I think that that's a positive step. Well, I just kind of wanted to add that mm -hmm. um, Biden's track record with immigration in the Obama administration was not stellar um, because it was part it was him and Obama that like deported more people than even Trump. And that's not ideal for the immigrants. And I feel that as a leftist, that I should prioritize the lives of the misfortunate at first. And due to American colonialism and all sorts of other things, those countries that you mentioned are at a state of disarray. And I feel that it is wrong to deport them simply because of some arbitrary law that was put onto this land after colonists went and took over it. So I feel that I do not have all the facts about this immigration center. But if it's enough for, again, I would like to reiterate, if it's enough for the activists to um, say that it's against what he was advertising in his campaign, then I would say that it's not ideal.
at the very least. Moving on, um, we have, um, finally, let's focus on Biden's foreign policy. So on February 25th, Biden ordered an airstrike against Iranian forces in Syria, killing 22, according to an article from NBC. Additionally, he has yet to hold the Saudi Arabian royal family accountable for their role in the brutal murder of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi in October 2018. What are your thoughts about these moves? So... Can I start on Saudi? I know you, I'm going to flip the order, but Saudi Arabia. So um, two things. So I just want to preface that Saudi Arabia, the Khashoggi thing was horrible. Saudi Arabia is a bad actor that, you know, has really bad activities in other ways. In addition to the Khashoggi murder, I think the policy of the Trump administration of just cuddling up was absurd and wrong. But I, I think I'm going to try and present here that sanctioning the crown prince directly would be counterproductive. And let me explain. The king at the moment is 85. And I looked up, he has diabetes and heart disease. So he's in very ill ill health. The crown prince has been running the show de facto, but when he becomes king, which is likely gonna happen in the next, under the next three, four years, we, we would not be, the United States would not be able to have foreign policy relations with Saudi Arabia if we were sanctioning um, MBS. Now, I, I, Olga, I, I, I don't think it's right to say that no, you know, no um, actions have been taken to punish royal, other royal officials. Um, they punished the rapid response team, which is the prince's personal guard. They, they, they uh, put sanctions on the deputy head of general intelligence in Saudi Arabia. They put sanctions on the number one advisor to the crown prince. They have, they have prevented from coming into the United States again, 76 other individuals. Um, so they're taking a lot of actions. Um, now, ideally you would punish the crown prince because he's responsible. But, but the point I'm making is practically that would be counterproductive and wouldn't work. Now, just briefly on the strikes, I, I, I just would like to say I'm a little bit more hawkish in my foreign policy maybe than, than you might expect. I'm. I, I looked into it, and I think it, the airstrike seems like an appropriate response um, to the to the situation. Um, the one thing that concerns me is that the Gang of Eight in Congress, particularly the chairs of the intelligence committees in the House and the Senate, were say that they were not informed in enough time to really give a consultation. That is concerning to me. I really think I really think that next time something like this happens, there really should be more notice and meaning me, meaningful communication with Congress about it. So I think, I think to me, that is like the biggest issue, but the, sh the strike itself seems like it was not a crazy move or crazy decision. Uh, so for the Jashogi one, um, mm. I am usually against, I'm, I'm like, as long as they don't sanction the common people and the country as a whole, I don't really like, if you sanction the crown prince, whatever, I'm like, William's explanation is I'm sure fine. Um, that's not something I really care about. Uh, I will say that I do think that we should stop selling arms to them. Um, but, you know, I'm unsure about like how that will happen, but, or if there will be a relationship with Saudi Arabia afterwards, but that's my main priority is that we stop selling arms to them. As for the drone strike, uh, this is gonna be a super controversial opinion, but I think drone strikes are bad. I also believe that the U.S. has been in the Middle East for too long and that it's time for us to pull out. So I am against any sort of 
action of violence by the American military in those areas because I strongly believe that it is not our place and that we should leave immediately. And that, um, again, with not selling arms, like, I mean, leave as in, first of all, troops out, but mm-hmm. also uh, to stop, like, again, like I said, selling arms, because that's also participating in the war. I would actually agree, we should not be supporting Saudi Arabia in the Yemen war. The Yemen war, civil war is a humanitarian crisis of enormous magnitude. It's an mm-hmm. unbelievable disaster. It's something like 5 million children are starving at the right. moment. So I, I 100%, I also would extend that to the United Arab Emirates, who we also sell arms to. And mm-hmm. I would I, I would think agree generally with your spirit about Middle East. The Iraq war was an un, was like one of the worst decisions ever made to go into Iraq. Right. Um, I think, I think, so I, I generally pre- agree with what you're saying. I think if you look at a place like Afghanistan, the issue here is if we pull all of our troops out, the Afghan government that, that, that has been gaining strength over the years, it is not able to hold off the um, extremist groups that would, that would, that would take over. So are we really helping? Are we actually helping? Because if the war has been going on for this long and it just doesn't seem like it's going anywhere, and you said yourself that it was probably one of the worst decisions ever well, made. I said Iraq specifically, but oh, I, Iraq. I, mm-hmm. yeah, Iraq's actually doing a lot better. So let me just let me try and clarify what I mean. What I mean in Afghanistan is not really talking about our initial decision. We've been there so long, but that the current situation now is you have the Afghan government fighting the. Um, I, I'm going to Al Qaeda, maybe another extremist groups. So I'm not sure, and that we supporting the Afghan government is really what's keeping the Al Qaeda or other extremist group. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name from gaining a foothold. So I think it's conceivable to talk about troop reduction that maybe we have too many people there. But I think in that particular case, in in this moment now, us having that presence there actually is stabilizing because we're supporting the Afghan government against um, the extremist group. So, but, but I, again, I appreciate, I, I agree with your general sentiment about we've, we've stuck our nose in places where we shouldn't have Iraq war is a good example of that in the Middle East. Just, so I think that, yeah. And then I, just another thing on Saudi Arabia, I think absolutely arms sale stopping or reducing. I, I think there's no question though that there is a relationship that we need to have with Saudi Arabia, because given the, the region at the moment, we are much more, I think the Trump, putting out the Iran nuclear deal was a disaster, but the Middle East is currently very unstable. Iran has just refused to mm-hmm. have diplomatic talks with, with the, not even us, with the Europeans, they just refused. And Saudi Arabia hates Iran. And it isn't like, well, Saudi Arabia hates Iran and we, we hate Iran too, so we'll be friends. But it's Saudi Arabia's security of, of the whole Gulf region. They really does require us to have a relationship to make sure that Iran, Iran's government and their, you know, basically theocracy doesn't spread everywhere. So I that's like the point that this, I would make. I would like to say this without sounding like I do not have any sympathy for those, for the F for the people in Afghanistan and those other countries. Mm -hmm. 
But when has it, when was America crowned the police of the world? Uh, it wasn't by me, so I don't know. Um, Are you sure? I, but, but I do, I mean, look, I, I, I'm not gonna find me agreeing with Trump on anything at all. Mm -hmm. But the idea that we spend unbelievable amounts of money on defense, way too much money on defense. I, I think it's something agree. that we would agree on. And so I'm actually for a balanced budget and reducing the deficit, but that means reducing defense as the main part of it. But in our defense spending, what we do is we spend all this money to go protect, we have our Japan and all these other allies, European allies too. We put in unbelievable quantities of money, including in the Middle East and for our people. And so I think I think we need to have a realignment in terms of your, your our, our, our allies. So Germany, you know, EU, Germany, France, and then um, Japan and other countries in Southeast Asia need to also start contributing a little bit more. I don't think the, you, it's unsustainable for us to spend all this money on defense and then mm -hmm. have a huge deficit and then not spend it on important programs um, for, for domestic policy. Right. So. Okay, I am gonna try to wrap this up soon. So yeah. Michaela, maybe do you wanna just give your final thoughts and then? Mm, I guess final thoughts is that, uh, well, you know, Biden will continue on Bidening. I'm not really expecting a lot from this administration. I've expressed that before. Um, I'm sure that my ideals of, you know, peace and not being able and like sound immigration and land back will not be met by the Biden administration. I can only hope for um, the minimum wage to be raised and possibly Medicare for all, although I haven't really heard any progress on that. So, but yeah, overall, I'm just waiting another four more years or until um, or more community action, because I'm feeling that is what we're going to have to use community action to fulfill the needs of the people instead of the Biden administration. I, I'm very optimistic going forward. There's unbelievable challenges ahead. Um, I, we don't need to get into health care, but I think um, doing public option with Obamacare makes sense. And that's roughly what they're going to do, push on their health care plan. Um, uh, I think this idea of bipartisanship, which is this kind of really central idea, but also I really think their tactics so far, which has not been compromising on everything, which I think was a was a concern. They're, 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 they say, I'm looking at this poll where 56% of Republican voters, the voters, the people, the voters themselves support the American Rescue Plan. So this plan has bipartisan support across the country. So I really think outreach to individual people, more so than the than the like members of Congress, but also the members of Congress, um, is is something that they're doing and something I hope they continue to do because I think it's really important. But overall, I'm excited for competence. I'm excited for progress. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Debatable. For more from KPLY and Anthro, check out our website at anthromagazine.org and our SoundCloud and Spotify, both at KPLY Pally Radio. A special thank you once again to Michaela Sia and William Rummelhart for participating in this debate, to Megatrax for providing music, and to Polina Kuzmina for making the cover art. This has been Olga Muse for KPLY.